Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023 and the end of week 58 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,325 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 406 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess there is a significant chance of a large-scale Russian missile strike between April 6th and April 14th due to current activity by the VKS and Black Sea Fleet and the upcoming religious holidays of Catholic Easter and Orthodox Easter. Second, Russian white nationalism connected to the Russian Orthodox Church and senior policymakers within Russian President Vladimir Putin's orbit is fueling religious and racial tension that could cause acts of internally directed terrorism. Third, the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and, beyond Bakhmut, are only capable of point and localized attacks. Fourth, we assess that the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut has reached its final phase, with Ukrainian forces completing a retrograde maneuver to what is likely the last strong defensive line in the city. Fifth, our assessment that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, that's seaburn, weapons, the Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut regardless of the cost, was accurate. With ammunition from other operational areas being channeled to Russian artillery units supporting PMC Wagner. Sixth, Russian forces are experiencing a theater-wide shortage of non-precision artillery munitions, particularly anti-tank guided missiles, or ATGMs, which is being made worse by offensive operations in Bakhmut. Seventh, the risk of a nuclear accident due to the de-energization of Ukraine's electrical grid remains as long as the Russian Ministry of Defense targets Ukraine's power industry. And finally, we maintain that the Kremlin is actively interfering with the governments of Moldova and Georgia to derail the European Union membership accession process and destabilize their current governments. One year ago yesterday, on April 4, 2022, in Cherniv, Russian forces completed their withdrawal from Ukraine, with territorial defense securing three border crossings. In the Sumy Oblast, the last remnants of Russian troops were retreating from Konotop. In Kharkiv, Russian forces launched two strike groups on Izium, one defeated near Sulhivka and the other capturing Brazhivka. 
Russian forces targeted hospitals in Kharkiv with cluster munitions and the Feldman Eco Park Zoo, damaging enclosures for the big cats. Ukrainian security officials were minutes away from euthanizing the animals when transport and facilities to care for them in Odessa were secured. In Donetsk, intense fighting continued in Mariupol, with Russian forces attacking the Dominica-flagged bulk carrier Asberg, sinking the vessel at its berth in the main port and injuring a crew member. Up to 250 members of the Ukrainian 36th Marines surrendered. Red Cross workers that had been held by Russian forces for almost a week in Manhush were released, but not allowed to proceed to Mariupol to evacuate residents as previously agreed. In Rubizhne, Russian artillery struck a nitric acid tank, sending a toxic orange plume into the sky. In Popazna, Russian forces were accused of dropping anti-personnel mines in civilian areas. In Kherson, the start of seven months of fighting for control of Oleksandrivka started. The village on the banks of the Dnipro River would change hands dozens of times through November 10, 2022. Russian-caliber cruise missiles fired from the Black Sea struck Dnipro. Russian state media agency Russia Today claimed that 93 Ukrainian soldiers were executed as war criminals for wearing civilian clothing. Over the previous five days, 22 nations in the European Union announced the expulsion of 468 Russian diplomats. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. It has become active in the Svaltava operational area, with Russian forces attacking Novoselivsk with significant resources from Kuzemivka. A geolocated video showed that Russian forces re-established control of western Kuzemivka and advanced to the railroad station along the M7 highway. Ukrainian forces suffered significant losses and some troops were captured. In eastern Novoselivsk, Ukrainian tanks were operating with impunity, striking Russian positions. Based on weather conditions and snowpack, the video is from April 4th, and we have updated the warm-up. In the Kremina operational area, fighting remains limited. Russian forces made another unsuccessful attempt to advance in the direction of Nevsky, according to the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and Russian mercenary mill blogger War Gonzo. Ukrainian authorities convinced four more civilians to evacuate from the village, supported by the White Angels Volunteer Organization. Since November, 40 residents of Makivka and 17 from Nevsky have left due to constant Russian shelling and the targeting of civilians, their homes, and livestock. Limited fighting continued west of Kremina in the forests and tree lines, with Russian forces' attempts to advance in the direction of Torske failing. Russian forces attempted to advance out of Dibrova without success, and fighting continued in the Serebriansky woods. In the Lysychansk operational area, Wargonzo reported that Russian forces attacked, quote, near Milohorivka, the one in Luhansk, and were unsuccessful. In northeast Donetsk, the ammunition shortage that PMC Wagner complained about from February to March has partially ended in the Bakhmut operational area, but it came at the expense of combat operations in other regions. A Ukrainian Special Operation Forces soldier told reporters, notably without clearance from Kyiv, quote, The head of Wagner was saying that they had no ammunition, 
so they could not continue their assaults. This was a great moment for us to raid and ambush their units, but it all ended quickly. Ammunition was delivered to them, artillery and airstrikes became twice as strong now. End quote. The soldier reported that PMC Wagner had returned to the tactic of using human wave attacks in the urban areas of Bakhmut. Sometimes fresh waves arrive during an ongoing point attack, with Wagnerites stepping over their dead comrades' bodies. He added that no one should underestimate the Russians, who also have their own, quote, motivation planted in their heads by Russian propaganda. North of Bakhmut, there was only positional fighting near Orekhovo Vasilivka. Sharp-eyed readers may notice a small change to the map. The adjustment was made based on a geolocated video, resulting in the line of conflict moving 100 meters. In Bakhmut, our assessment on April 3rd that Ukrainian forces are in a retrograde operation to the railroad tracks that separate the industrial and central districts from the western parts of Bakhmut was accurate. PMC Wagner has secured the entirety of the industrial district and Azom complex to the railroad tracks and captured the Hotel Bakhmut, School No. 11, and the main railroad station, essentially capturing Bakhmut's center. The tax office building, adjacent to the ruins of the city administration building, was leveled by Russian forces. Ukrainian forces maintained control of the area around the Avantgarde Stadium, the Rose District by Pivnichny Reservoir, and north of Korsunskoho Street. PMC Wagner now controls 75-80% to 80% of Bakhmut. Some assessment here. While we will not speculate on a timeline of when or if Bakhmut will fall, the defense of the city has entered its final phase. We had assessed as far back as the fall of 2022 that Russian forces combined with PMC Wagner lacked sufficient forces to encircle Solidar and Bakhmut, so we are not surprised at the shift in tactics to squeeze Ukrainian forces out, even though it means leaving the T-506 and T-504 highway ground lines of communication, called GLOCs, those are supply lines, accessible. PMC Wagner and Russian VDV forces continued attacks on Ivanivske, which remained unsuccessful. Near Kramatorsk, rapidly melting snow caused a spillway at a dam to fail, flooding 30 streets and 260 homes. 17 people needed rescue, with 7 now staying in a temporary shelter and 10 with area relatives. Engineers are working to stop the flow of water. In southwest Donetsk, in the Avdiivka operational area, operational tempo remained lower compared to last month. Ukrainian forces are slowly pushing back the Russian advance into Krasnohorivka, with no reports of fighting near Stepova or Kiramik, and Worgonzo reporting that Ukrainian forces in Krasnohorivka were shelled for the second day in a row. The GSAFU reported that Russian forces made repeated attempts to advance toward Novokalinova without success. The GSAFU also reported that Ukrainian forces in Novobakhmutivka were shelled and an attack in the area of Krasnohorivka was repulsed. Some assessment here. We did not change the map as we maintain our assessment that neither combatant has firm control of the Krasnohorivka plateau or the surrounding approaches. The conflicting intelligence is pretty representative of the battle dynamics in this part of the operational area. Russian troops with the 1st Army Corps failed to advance on Avdiivka from Vesele 
Kashta Nova and Krutabalka. Despite the shelling, airstrikes, and mandatory evacuation order, civilian life continues in the ruins of the city. South of Avdiivka, the First Army Corps continued attempts to advance on Sieverne without any success, and continues to suffer unsustainable losses, using Mobiks from Russia to bolster the ranks of the Somalia Battalion, Slavic Brigade, and Slovyansk Brigade. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian positions within Vodiana were shelled throughout the day. Our assessment of available intelligence indicates this is west of the village center along the reservoirs. We made a minor change to the warm-up in Pervomaisky, moving the line of conflict east closer to Piski, where Russian forces continue to launch attacks across the E-50 ring road without success. In the Marinka operational area, Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that continued fighting was limited to the rubble of the central district of Marinka, with Russian mercenary mill blogger Rybar reporting that Ukrainian forces continued to hold Druzhby Avenue. Toretsk was hit by Grad or Smirch rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, striking the facility of a coal mine, an equipment repair facility, and private homes, killing two people. West of Marinka, Kurachova was heavily shelled with Smirch rockets fired by MLRS, including cluster munitions, causing significant damage to a shopping center, the post office, Ukratelecom facilities, that's a phone company, a hospital, and multiple apartment buildings. Moving on to Zaporizhia. Oleksiy Dmitrashkivsky, Director of Communications for the Defense Forces of the Tavria Front, addressed why the Zaporizhia region has turned into a frozen front despite a large contingent of Russian troops in the area, saying, quote, Let me explain. If the enemy, he means Russia, extends its offensive along the entire contact line, it will start to lack logistics. The enemy already lacks logistics on the four main fronts where it is attacking. If the Zaporizhia front is also included, the enemy will not be able to supply ammunition or fuel at all. The problem with this is already tangible, as today we received information that the enemy, after numerous attacks by the Ukrainian armed forces on ammunition and fuel storage points in Mariupol, has begun to take equipment and ammunition out of Mariupol. End quote. Some assessment. We can't independently verify his claim. However, the number of videos and reports from insurgents in the Mariupol, Berdyansk, and Melitopol areas about the movements of Russian military equipment and troops dropped significantly after the Russian military failure at Vukhledar, which crippled two brigades and caused the documented loss of over 130 armored vehicles. The number of Russian fire missions in Zaporizhia is down 50 to 60 percent from 40 days ago and 75 percent from January. Yesterday, we reported with attribution from multiple Russian sources that Maxim Zubaryev had died in the hospital after being severely injured by a car bomb. Russian sources now claim that Zubaryev is still alive. It's unclear if collaborator Yulia Gubanova has been appointed as the acting mayor or is a permanent replacement. There was no update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, or ZNPP. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OKS, reported there were 15 vessels of the Black Sea Fleet on patrol, 
including four frigates and two Kilo-class submarines capable of launching up to 40-caliber cruise missiles in total. After the Zatoka Bridge was knocked out of service almost a year ago, transportation has been challenging in the southwest corner of Ukraine. Well, a new rail line to Moldova has been opened between Serpneve and Basarabaska. The completed rail connection will support up to 10 million tons of cargo per year. In western and central Ukraine, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery fire across the Dnipro River. Russian forces conducted 50 fire missions, firing 299 artillery rounds, rockets, mortars, and indirect tank fire, injuring three people. Due to the constant punitive shelling and airstrikes on the west bank of the Dnipro River, residents will be forbidden to visit cemeteries and other burial places over the Easter holiday, and local officials will not permit large gatherings of people in the regions being targeted by Russian troops. Also, the Defense Council decided to prohibit the entry of families with children due to the threat to children's lives. A video showed a Ukrainian DRG unit on the Dnipro returning from a mission with one appearing badly wounded and receiving medical treatment. As with most of the photos and videos we reference here on the podcast, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. On the east bank of the Dnipro, Ukrainian forces targeted electrical infrastructure, knocking out power in the Olishki and Holopristan Hromadas. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Spokesperson for the Ukrainian Air Force, Yuri Ignat, expressed frustration with the mainstream media and their coverage of fighter plane aid, saying, quote, Dear media representatives, please stop manipulating the headlines, making unsubstantiated victory news about the transfer of Slovak and Polish MiGs, thanks to which, I quote, it was possible to equip three fighter brigades. Where did the number 72 come from? The Air Force has five fighter brigades, three armed with MiG-29s. The transfer of Polish and Slovak MiG-29s will somewhat strengthen the capabilities of the Air Force's fighter aircraft in the performance of current combat missions, but in no way will it solve the issue of counteroffensive or victory. End quote. Quick sidebar. I would just like to point out that not everyone got it wrong or made up numbers without researching public information in Polish and Slovak media sources. Just saying. Ignat also reported that the Russian VKS is launching up to 20 Fab 500 JDAM ER bombs into Ukraine, using the glideability of the bombs to stay out of Ukrainian airspace and air defense systems. The bombs have mostly been used to harass civilians, and in Kherson, some of the munitions have targeted empty fields in what Ukrainian officials believe is an attempt to disrupt planting season. Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs Dmitry Kuleba is in Brussels to participate in the Ukraine-NATO Commission's official meeting, the first since 2017. The Ukrainian Foreign Ministry released a statement addressing the participation, saying, quote, For the first time in six years, a meeting of the Ukraine-NATO Commission took place. This is the main basic format of interaction at a high political level that was blocked, and we not only managed to unlock it, 
but there is also a great desire to hold such a meeting with the participation of the president at the summit in Vilnius. End quote. Peter Siarto, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Hungary, was unhappy the work of the Ukraine NATO Commission restarted, saying, quote, The invitation of the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine violates the principle of unity of allies within NATO, but we will take part in the meeting in a constructive spirit. End quote. However, he added that Budapest would stop blocking Ukraine's attempts to elevate its status with NATO, quote, only on the condition that the Ukrainians return to the Hungarians of Transcarpathia the rights they enjoyed until 2015, end quote. Okay, so the situation with ethnic Hungarians within Ukraine is very complicated, and much like Transnistria and Moldova, is a construct of Stalin and post-World War II Soviet rule and Russification. Transcarpathia replaced Nazi tyranny with Soviet tyranny in 1944, and the region, which before World War I was part of Hungary, was arbitrarily made part of Ukraine. Historically, this must have been awkward as hell, as Hungary was an ally of Nazi Germany while Ukraine and its northern neighbors, Poland and Belarus, bore the brunt of Nazi brutality during World War II. The region maintained its Hungarian identity, traditions, and language, resisting Russification. In 1991, when Ukraine voted for independence, Transcarpathia voted on a measure to become an autonomous district. The ballot measure passed with 78% in favor, with the post-Soviet government in Kyiv promising to look at the issue. In 2014, with Russian forces fighting in the Donbass and occupying Crimea, the attempts to enable the regions to operate with more autonomy before 2014 backfired into separatist violence. Russia has been repeatedly accused of financing extremist political parties in Europe, and Hungary and the Transcarpathian-Hungarian enclave are no exceptions. According to The Economist, the Hungarian political party Jobbik is one of them. In 2013, its leader described Russia as the guardian of Europe's heritage, contrasting it with the, quote, treacherous European Union. Its most controversial figure, Biela Kovacsi, was a member of the European Parliament and left Jobbik in 2016 under multiple investigations in the EU and Hungary. In September 2022, he was convicted in absentia to five years in prison for espionage and is believed to be a KGB spy. Today, he lives in Russia. Under this backdrop of Russian interference in the region, a war in the Donbass and the occupation of Crimea, Kyiv didn't want another breakaway region on its western border even if there were no outward signs of a separatist movement. In 2015, the government dialed back a handful of autonomy measures, and in 2017, further education restrictions were placed on the region. The Hungarian government sees this as repression against ethnic Hungarians, around 150,000 people. Video and pictures circulated on Russian social media showing a wounded Ukrainian soldier being evacuated near Bakhmut likely on April 2nd based on weather conditions. Russian channels quickly celebrated that it was Ukrainian drone unit commander Robert Magyarbrovdi who became internationally famous earlier in the year as he explained drone operations through the power of a pointer, which one of our analysts called magical. See, Magyar points at something on the screen, and the drone blows it up. Reports of Magyar's death have been greatly exaggerated. Magyar is, in fact, quite alive, 
and left Bakhmut almost two months ago, with his unit attacking Russian troops in the Avdiivka operational area. He recently shared a video of Ukrainian surveillance drones operating over the city of Donetsk. The United States Department of State announced a 2.6 billion U.S. dollar military aid package for Ukraine. The package includes 500 million U.S. dollars in drawdown authority against existing military inventory, and another 2.1 billion U.S. dollars for future purchases. We go over the aid package in more detail in the full situation report. Of note, however, there's a lot of ammunition and some satellite and communication systems. Speaking of aid packages, let's talk about the Russian military mobilization and Mir. Russian VDV forces posted a thank you video for receiving camouflage netting for winter and fall conditions that were handmade by volunteers in Saint Petersburg. Some quick assessment. While on the surface this is a feel-good Russian story, VDV and naval infantry should be among the best equipped units, Russian or Ukrainian. Having to crowdsource basic military needs like camouflage to hide equipment and trenches is an additional indicator of supply and logistics issues with the Russian Federation. Outside the U.S. Embassy, there was a totally spontaneous anti-NATO protest that was definitely not planned in advance by protesters who just happened to be wearing matching red and blue tracksuit jackets and holding coincidentally identical signs. And Russian state media just happened to be walking by with full camera crews, spontaneously. According to local reports, the protest lasted less than an hour and dispersed all at the same time with not a bit of coordination after Russian state media cameras left. How extraordinarily serendipitous! The Saint Petersburg column of the National Republican Army. Claimed responsibility for the bombing of a restaurant that killed Russian military officer and blogger Maxim Fomin, more commonly known as Vladlin Tatarsky. We will not be sharing the statement here on the podcast. While this may interest a broad audience, and many in our audience will agree with and celebrate the statement, we must maintain the journalistic standards we adhere to. What happened in Saint Petersburg was a terrorist attack. The truth matters. Russian Colonel General and aspiring dentist Ramzan Don Don Kadyrov waded into the Moscow mosque construction controversy and anti-Islam rhetoric from his brothers and sisters in Russia. Kadyrov was reportedly outraged and said the Russian Orthodox Church and nationalists protesting against the mosque's construction should be sent to fight for a quote Russian Donbas. Yesterday, we assessed that the anti-Muslim rhetoric on Russian social media. State media and church supporters would not go over well in the minority Muslim regions of Russia. It took less than 24 hours for a response. In Tatarstan, a Russian Orthodox church was set on fire in Nizhnykomsk. Everything is going to plan, as long as you're white Orthodox. In our war crimes and human rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. War crimes investigators found the bodies of three civilians buried in shallow graves in Piatigatki in the Kherson region, including an 80-year-old woman, a 59-year-old man, and a 43-year-old man. 
Preliminary findings concluded the three were killed during the Russian shelling of the village during the final days of occupation. Russian troops shelled a psychiatric hospital in the Kherson region, windows were broken, and a fence was destroyed. According to Pavel Palamarchuk, director of the Kherson Regional Psychiatric Hospital, there were 47 people in the three-story building at the time of the shelling. Maria Lvova Bielova, the Russian president's commissioner for human rights, reported that the Russian secret services stopped a Ukrainian teenager from Mariupol from attempting to return to his home. Bohdan Yermukhin was taken by Russian occupation forces to Donetsk and then to a foster family in Moscow. Lvova Bielova claimed that Yermukhin is good friends with Philip, who was taken from Ukraine and she adopted for herself. She claimed that Ukrainian handlers had written to him suggesting he make a video about how bad he feels being in Russia and claims his attempt to return to Ukraine only happened, quote, after being persuaded by the same handlers, end quote. Just a reminder that Lvova Bielova is a wanted war criminal for forcibly relocating children from Ukraine, with a warrant for her arrest issued by the International Criminal Court. Ukrainian officials claim that Russian occupiers plan to excavate the mass graves in Manhush, outside of Mariupol, which may contain thousands of bodies, and erase all traces of their existence. The justification isn't related to hiding war crimes, but allegedly to hide budgetary malfeasance, with new Russian prosecutors in Donetsk reviewing how much money was spent. Erasing the grave's existence ends the audit on the condition of what is currently listed as, quote, unregistered grave sites by Russian officials. In geopolitical news, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, called for reconfiguring the United Nations Security Council, saying, quote, the current order, which traps the fate of mankind between the lips of five countries, is not sustainable. It is imperative that the UN Security Council be reformed with an inclusive and comprehensive understanding. End quote. During a visit to Vilnius, Lithuania, Georgian President Salume Zurabishvili attended a meeting supporting Ukraine's struggle, telling the audience, quote, Lithuania is one of the countries that, like Ukraine and Georgia, know what the experience of Russian occupation and aggression means. Many people in Europe repeat that you are fighting for our future and our freedom, but we know from our experience that you are fighting for our freedom and European future. End quote. Zorabishvili later expressed confidence that Ukraine and Georgia would be members of the EU. While we are loath to center U.S. American politics on this podcast, this story might benefit from some explanation for our international audience and probably some of our domestic audience, too, due to the strong potential for dis- and misinformation. So, yes. Former United States President Donald Trump was arraigned on 34 felonies in a Manhattan court, pleading not guilty. After processing, which includes a mugshot and fingerprints, he was released pending his next hearing. Russian and Ukrainian mainstream and social media were confused about how someone could be charged with 34 felonies and walk out of a courtroom, with Trump-aligned outlets celebrating this as a dismissal of charges. That's not how courts work in the United States. An arraignment is a procedural hearing where formal criminal charges are filed. Even if Trump pled guilty, the court would have rejected his plea for complicated reasons. 
The accused can be held on what is called remand under house arrest or pretrial detention. Bail can be set, which is a promise to return to court backed up by financial assets which are forfeited if the accused doesn't return. If the defendant can pay bail, they are released, typically with conditions. Finally, a person can be released on personal recognizance with or without conditions. In the case of Trump, the court released him on personal recognizance without specific conditions, but a stern warning about fomenting violence. The trial is scheduled for December 4, 2023. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.